0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. This is On the Environment, a podcast by the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm Ivana Andrade, a master's student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Today, we're in the studio with Chris Sawyer, a lawyer specializing in the environment, strategic and business planning, and corporate governance. Chris has served on the board for multiple land conservation organizations, such as the Trust for Public Land, the Urban Land Institute, and the Murie Center in Wyoming. All of these groups are dedicated to protecting and enhancing both urban and wild natural environments. He's currently teaching at Yale, a course for students at the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, called Structuring Success, which focuses on key elements of environmental leadership. Today, we're talking with Chris about trends he's observed in the conservation arena and how his early studies at the Yale Divinity School continue to shape his work in the field. Thank you, Chris, for being here. It's a pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you, Ivana. It's good to be part of your program. I appreciate the invitation.
0: You have a unique perspective on environmental conservation in the US for a few reasons. First, you've involved you've been involved with a wide variety of organizations from an advisory role. And second, you've been active in this realm since the early 90s. What are some of the main changes and trends you've observed in this work?
1: When, when I started doing this back in around 1990, um, i over overgeneralize. Uh, most of the organizations, um, for instance, like the Nature Conservancy, they were doing uh, very specific deals. Um, trying to, you know, to protect uh, land for endangered species, plant or animal. And, and most of those were smaller pieces of property. I mean, occasionally they'd be able to invest in a large tract like an Allen uh, or or the light. But, but most part, it was smaller tracts. And there was a general thinking that if you found 50 acres that had some endangered species of, say, tulips on it, that if you protected that 50 acres, uh, you would protect the species. Now, over the 25 years, we, of course, have learned that that's not correct. And so during that period of time, there's been, a, a again, a morphing of perspective and vision and effort uh, that says, well, to protect that, you've got to protect an ecosystem that supports it. And so that led to a broader view of what is necessary to do species uh, protection. And that, of course, has gone from that iteration to a much broader one because now I think it's generally uh, understood that we are all connected and you have to have a global view if you're going to really look after most species because uh, they're not bound by county lines and state lines and national lines. And so that has to be part of your thinking as you're looking at what you do. And so the concept of hotspots and and, uh, looking at different places in the world that support Uh, those endangered species whether right there but more often than not when you go protect a hot spot you're protecting species all over the globe so and it's the same thing with parks I I chaired the national board of the trust for public land for seven years and I would say that when we started which was before I was involved but it was the late 70s uh, we really were just trying to figure out how we can save land for people uh, because we were obviously had organizations that were doing that for um, Endangered species, but at some point uh many people awoke and realized that you know we might be endangered too if we don't have access to open space and all the advantages and rewards that that open space uh brought to uh humans and so anyway, when we started a lot of the action there was also in uh either doing inholdings in national forests, which was important work uh and things of that scale and, and trying to sort of uh, finish out some of the national parks and and the forest but we also morphed um, in our understanding. If we were going to conserve land for people, by the mid nineties, we clearly started focusing on the notion that simple notion that most people live in urban centers, and if we were going to uh, you know uh, provide land for parks and for people, then we really ought to be looking very hard at those areas where the people are. So there was accessibility, and and you know there was some social justice in that so that you had all members of the community that could access them, uh, whether they had transportation or not or could afford transportation or not. Uh, also, a real realization that parks are the uh, American commons. Uh, they are what we share, um, and that they're a wonderful place for building and creating community um, where people of all stripes uh, are there and in, in recreating or enjoying the, the, uh, just the solitude and the beauty of nature. Um, but that was critical, to quality of life. And, and, and in fact, increasingly through the end of the 90s, and even now, certainly now, the people that are very interested in developing cities, um, which is increasingly a lot of us, um, understand that you really can't have the quality of life for a community unless you've got parks and open space built in and planned into that community.
0: Can you elaborate on what role real estate has played in conservation over the last decade or so?
1: Well, my practice, of course, was corporate-oriented, but with a real real estate focus. And, uh, and I did that not only in the metropolitan Atlanta area, but by the early 80s, I had grown a national practice, which was quite unusual at the time. Uh, real estate is generally perceived as being a very local proposition, which at some real level it absolutely is. But on the other hand... The real estate industry grew so that we had a number of companies that were doing work, uh, first regionally and then nationally. And so my practice had met that. During that time, I, I was, uh, in the by the mid-'80s, I was starting to really think a lot about conservation and get involved there because I was uh, both interested in it and loved the outdoors, but also was concerned that we needed to do more. And during that time, I, I learned that there was this sort of um, standoff between the real estate community and the conservation community, and and I certainly could understand it intellectually, but I couldn't understand it at a personal level, because all my friends in the real estate business, the ones I was working with, they loved the land and, and uh, open space and as much as any conservationist I ever met, and and, uh, and they had a huge respect for it. Now, I, I understand that there are people in that industry that don't share those views, but I likewise understand there are people in conservation that don't understand that we need to have housing and places where that we can, um, you know, have retail and commerce and have an economy. And so it's the middle that I was trying to put together. And so I, I uh, had started working with the Nature Conservancy and, and, uh, and then convinced... Uh, them that they should have some sort of outreach mechanism to the real estate community and so I started their national real estate advisory council which we did for five years in the mid 90s I believe and it was terrific we uh ended up having 22 people on the board kind of at its you know it's uh, a high point with TNC and and they they were great real estate leaders across the country and and, uh, and it was wonderful and we ended up um Taken that, and with TNC's acquiescence and direction, and said, "All right, let's put it with the trust for public land, folks." And so we did that somewhere around 1996, I believe. And and uh, and what happened was that we, um, the whole concept that I was trying to accomplish was that was I wanted to uh, I wanted to recognize I wanted people to recognize that the conservation community was doing a good job, but that it was too small a scale to deal with the problems America had with those issues and likewise you could look at the real estate industry and it was on a huge scale but it really didn't understand how to provide for open space and parks because uh, there wasn't uh, there was certain some intellectual effort to make that happen but in practice it was not yet there so anyway that became a great nexus point between the two industries and the idea was simple let's uh you know, let's um, import to the conservation community some of the best practices from real estate to improve our conservation skills in terms of how you protect lands, but let's export from the conservation community uh, our knowledge about how you, uh, you know, help to protect species diversification and the like, or how you do parks and, you know, go take abandoned railroad lines and turn them to trails or uh, how you uh, plan and design and build a community around a new park, and then put it together and make it happen, and and uh, so that was remarkably fruitful work, and I, and I became very involved through that because we had a lot of the leadership of the Urban Land Institute on the Trust for Public Land National Real Estate Advisory Council, and uh, so we became that that group became um, very active at ULI, which was the, it still is probably the most important broad based. Uh, professional real estate organization it has about 40,000 members around the globe. And uh, and so if you go in and you say, well, 1993, 94, 95, where was ULI then? And uh, I can report to you that they were really concerned about the Clean Water Act and the Endangered Species Act as limitations on development. Um, you know, by the end of the 90s, for a lot of reasons, but specifically because of the leadership of this group and their leadership at ULI, we had the presidents on our council for I think at one point we had four of them that were involved with our effort and uh, all of a sudden you started seeing a wonderful transformation of ULI's programming and it was green growth, green development, new urbanism. All of those things were incorporated and and um, taught through the ULI programs and, and in fact uh, again talking about transformational moments And again, it involved a lot of people, not just this one effort, but this effort was certainly significant to it. Um, You know, that if you went to a ULI program in the early 90s, I'd say there was very little environmental programming or conservation-related programming on it. By 2000, it might have been 40% of their programs were somehow related to how do you improve your development and your quality of life by making it greener. And so that's exciting, and that's where that nexus has been, uh, or that we've tried to evolve. And and I think the insight that that they were a lot closer uh, than people were giving them credit for being in the nineties. And once we figured out a way to include both in dialogue, so that it could be meaningful, uh, it's it's been a great partnership.
0: What do you think are some of the main challenges that the conservation community faces? Uh, in doing larger scale work that you were talking about a few minutes ago?
1: One is if you're really talking larger scale projects, uh, you know, you've got to figure out the vision. And, you know, that sounds sort of trite and easy, but uh, I'll tell you there are a lot of things that are stunningly wonderful about this country, but one of the most important is that great ideas sell in this country. People resonate to inspirational ideas and so we have done two projects I, I can name others around the country but but uh, two in Atlanta that have been terrific one was our Chattahoochee River Greenway program and the, the other one is the Belt Line that's underway as we speak and both have been transformational I mean uh, but in again in the early 90s the Trust for Public Land which we had just started um, in and the Trust for Public Lands Advisory Board in Georgia, which we just started, you know, we decided that, um, that we needed to do work that was closer to Atlanta because uh, we were so small, but that was where all the people were, and so that we should focus our activities on that. And we just sort of, as an afterthought, said we should really focus our work also on the Chattahoochee River because that's our water source. And as we shortly learned after that, it's, it was actually 55% of the drinking water of the state of Georgia, but it was also the smallest watershed of any major metropolitan city in America. And so it just made sense to protect land out there. Not only could you get parks immediately for the metropolitan area, but you could also, um, in in getting that land for parks, that was also the best way to hold and purify and filter the water. And so, you know, Our vision evolved to do that, and we had the help of lots and lots of people, and even at the start, we had some wonderful uh, partners that evolved, but the end result of that was after 10 years of working on the vision to protect the Chattahoochee River for the people of the state of Georgia, uh, and to do it for parks, and as a community builder, and as a water protector, we actually had gone from having absolutely nothing. I mean, we had no money, um, and... More importantly, nobody on the river knew that they—and this river literally goes right through the northern arc of metropolitan Atlanta. But nobody out there knew that they wanted to sell us their property, much less give it to us and uh, or give us some portion of it. And But when the smoke cleared after a decade, our group, which had started with a handful of people and had grown to thousands of people, we had actually protected— over 70 miles of river frontage as parklands involving 29 different governmental jurisdictions. And when we declared victory, we actually had more money in reserve than we ever thought we could have raised at the beginning. So I would say that vision and leadership was critical to that. Um, The Beltline Project now is um, a a grad student in Georgia Tech in the mid-'80s. was doing his uh, master's work, and he discovered that there was a loop of rail that circled the inner city of Atlanta that was about 16 miles and if you could put together some trails that would take you another five miles you'd have about a 21-22 mile loop that circled the city inside the perimeter and so he articulated that and he um it was a terrific vision and it was very practical and the railroad abandoned lines were there and so it just sort of slowly built and aware, people being aware of it. And so by the late 90s, early 2000s, the community got behind it and Trust for Public Land got very involved with it. Um, other organizations now, have, everybody's bought into it. And we probably have, I would say, seven to eight miles of those trails in place now. And they've been transformational. We've got one that's very close to where we live and we live dead center downtown. Um, it's probably four miles long now and it's created two parks but I, I would imagine that you go out on an average Saturday, much less a pretty one, and there'll be 10,000 people out there and they were not there two years ago and and the park is created so that it will, and is in fact being built out so that it's all aspects, it goes all the way around the inner city, so we've got the entire community being brought together by this physical space um, and it's, it's really already transformed downtown Atlanta. It's spectacular.
0: What a great story. Yeah. And elaborating a, a little bit more on that, what do you think are some of the more promising venues for change nationwide from a policy perspective?
1: Well, I've, you know, the great challenge um, is probably uh, is just seawater rise. Um, you know, we've got, that's just, It's a very significant issue to understate the problem, and we all saw it up here at Yale with Sandy. Um, You know, go down to Lower Manhattan, and uh, you know when I go down there, and I realize the water was up almost to the top of the first floor right there where you get on the Staten Island Ferry. um, You know that you can say is an extraordinarily abnormal event, but if you take the perspective that maybe that's not, that begins to describe for you the challenges that we've got in terms of dealing with that Um, climate change in terms of temperature and what that's going to do to land usage uh, is really striking if you look at the maps and you start believing in it and so those are all huge questions and and they they challenge us to think differently about all of this too, because you've got to you look and say, "Well, I want to go preserve these lands," and some of the philanthropic community are saying, "Well, we don't want to preserve lands on the coast anymore because they may be if not underwater compromised and so that that changes your arc about how you think about all this stuff i mean and Georgia has got a hundred miles from south carolina to florida but we've got 35 percent of the marshland and uh, the east coast and so also pre-2008 they probably were suffering as much development pressure as any area in the country any area on the east coast anyway uh, because it's such an attractive stunningly beautiful stunningly well protected on a relative basis place to to visit and to live and Fortunately, the, I mean, the it's the only thing fortunate about the two thousand eight recession, but but it slowed that so that we've been able to start rethinking it and and help us get a plan and some awareness and some education for all of us, including me, um, that um, will hopefully help us do a better job of that. But it's greatly complicated by sea level rise and and just figuring out how we're going to deal with that. So um, that to me is going to be a huge challenge. Uh, in the United States. And that's not just here, it's across the country.
0: Shifting gears a little bit, you received your Masters of Divinity from Yale in 1975. I'm curious, how has this past experience informed your life's work, and how does it shape your work now?
1: Well, I was very fortunate uh, to be able to come to Yale Divinity School. Uh, I uh, somehow earned or won a Rockefeller fellowship and it was designed to allow people that were interested in the ministry but not as they say interested enough to pay their own way to qualify and I could say yes to both those issues in the fall of 71 and then I was fortunate enough I got it and that brought me up here and and I uh, um, you know I knew and I always thought I wanted to go to law school and and uh, But I also knew as I was graduating from Chapel Hill uh, that I wasn't ready to go to law school as a 21-year-old at that time. And uh, the Divinity School was just terrific. And it built on um, um, 21 years of growing up in a church family and a family of faith and uh, of expansive faith. And uh, so it was just a great next chapter. And, um, And so people ask me, and they say, well, how does this relate, as you just did, to my work? And I don't usually talk publicly about it, but I, I've always looked at this as sort of ministry. But instead of using the word ministry, I use the more neutral word, just service. Uh, and I just, you know, we're all in life for a very short period of time. Uh, we've all got wonderful gifts. Uh, we all can make a huge difference and make a contribution. And that seems to me to be self-evident uh, just as a human being, but if you think about it theologically or from a faith perspective, uh, the, that imperative is even stronger and richer. And so I've always approached it from that perspective, and it's uh, it's been a stunningly rewarding life uh, from that perspective, and I, um, and I tell people that uh, when you get in conservation work, um, you don't worry about whether it's important or not because it only it has about two or three characteristics that are just flat true. One is you're dealing with land and creating open spaces for people and that's about permanent things because land is about permanence. And there are very few parks that are not permanent. Uh, you know that when you create it, you're doing that. And secondly, most of the motivation for um, saving park lands is that there's usually somebody or some small group in the area that loves that area so much. that that they want to work hard to share it and they want to protect it so it can be shared with a broader group of people for a very long time. And so you've got permanence and you've got love. And then the third thing is you'll never create uh, uh, a park unless you create a community to do it. I mean, I mentioned the Beltline. Trust me, there are thousands of people now involved in making the Beltline a reality in Atlanta, and it ranges from the you know, whatever an average person on the street is, I'm not sure what it is, but that person to the top of our philanthropic uh, th- philanthropic uh, group in Atlanta, to our great city leaders, our mayor, uh, the state, the federal government. I mean, there are thousands upon thousands of people now generating to do all of that. So you build a community. And, you know, that's basically what a faith community should be about. And those are three things that build into all of that. So it's a very natural place for me to find myself, and I'm extraordinarily grateful that I've had the opportunity to do that. And, um, and in fact, at the Yale Divinity School, we're now talking about, um, we've, I've spent the last, um, a good part of the last decade, uh, trying to make the nexus between the faith community and the environmental community much closer uh, and the reason for thats is that is that I've polled it through the organizations I've worked on and other organizations have too. And most, 75 to 80 percent of Americans describe themselves as environmentalists. But if you look and say, well, what does that commitment mean? You'll discover that, and this is all made up numbers, but I would speculate it means there are about 10 million of that 80% of the people that are so committed, they'll give $25 to support an organization. So the level of commitment's low, and there's a huge delta between 10 million and 80% of our population. And so the question is, how do you get to that group? And then, certainly a decade ago, in all the park work I was doing all over the country, because I've been involved in parks in just about every state in the nation now, um, you know, I just, people of faith were involved, but I never saw the institutional faith community there. I never had a church come up to me with one or two examples saying, we have really helped make this work. Um, You know, they just weren't doing that. And then when you get to the sustainability issues, all of that's relatively new. Last decade, our focus on doing, you know, uh, trying to reduce our energy, water, and waste uh, issues uh, through better buildings, better land usage, and better behavior. Um, you know, th- they started getting into that as a result, but it's still not widespread. So I- I've thought much like I did with the real estate and the re- environmental community that, that that's a natural partnership that should be, uh, I want to say exploited, but there's probably a kinder word. Um, and, and, and the reason is that 80% of the people in America do believe in some, something that relates to faith. And uh, so, I just and if there's any one group that should own the creation story and its stewardship, it should be that, and so we need to export our tools to them, and they need to export their members to us, and we need to leverage that so that we increase our capacity to serve and to create better communities
0: just to wrap up our our conversation today. You're teaching a class right now at the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. You're helping to teach a class. And you bring in speakers from around the the country to talk on key elements of environmental leadership and speaking to students about how they themselves um, are becoming environmental leaders, or already are environmental leaders. What for you has been some of the main takeaways from this class so far?
1: Let me um, recraft the class purpose a little bit. I have assumed that if you're at the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, you're on your way to be an environmental leader, because that's one reason you go to that school. And um, <clears throat> But one of my frustrations is that, uh, well, there are two frustrations. Uh, one is that I think we have so many challenges out there right now, and therefore so many opportunities. That I don't want us to rely on the institutions the, uh, that are already there that you know that they're doing great jobs, but they're handling a much smaller piece of the universe than we need handled. Um, you know when you think of the largest uh, conservation organizations or the largest um, you know sustainability groups or whatever you think, well okay, they're taking care of all that well, I've been with them long enough to know that what they're taking care of is not that big. know. Um, to put it in context, when I chaired the Trust for Public Land Board for seven years, during that seven years, we um, helped uh, acquire $2 billion worth of land for parks in America. Okay. And if you went over and looked at the annual reports of the Nature Conservancy, um, they acquired, during that same seven years, about $2 billion, $2 billion worth of land to help protect endangered species. Okay. So that's $4 billion, and that's best of class. So whoever else is in your column when you're adding up the acreage, other than federal government maybe, um, the dollar values get less and less. And as I have told people and as I'm telling you now, you, I could look out my 40-story window in the uh, One Atlantic Center Tower in Atlanta and looking in one direction – for about three miles, I can see $4 billion worth of real estate development. So that gives you a sense of the scale. And I don't, I'm do not i not being critical of either organization. And I'm not diminishing the accomplishments because they're stunning. And the land they've protected is really special. It's great. But, you know, there's a lot more to be taken care of. So thankfully, we've got 1,700 land trusts in America that are also helping to work with this uh, phenomena and this great job that we've got. But we need even more than that. We also need new ideas. And you know what I've discovered talking to a lot of young people over the years, and having two of our own, um, is that they do have wonderful ideas. Not always, but they do. And um, but they don't have the confidence about how you go out and realize and act upon those ideas. And so that has led me to try to figure out how do we teach. Our young people, you know, I don't need to give them an MBA, and most of them don't need an MBA. Um, What they need, though, is an awareness of the elements of creating an organization and how to run it. So that's what I, have with this course, have systematically tried to do is provide that introduction. And and quite frankly, most schools, hardly any school, does that. And and, uh, if you say, what's my takeaway? I, I think it's worked extraordinarily well, and we need to do more of it. That's my takeaway. I
0: think so, too. The class has been getting great reviews. Good. It's, I'm pleased it's, to hear It's that. already been a success. Okay, well, good. It's been a pleasure having you in the studio today. Thank you so much, Chris.
1: Okay, Ivana, thank you for inviting yeah. me. This is great.